looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. This is Wrong Real episode 546, podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we are going back to the early 70s with one of the most shocking, controversial, and provocative movies ever made, Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. And for this conversation, you really couldn't ask for two better people to discuss it with than Bradley Cornish and Dan Poland from Movies from Hell, because for years now, y'all have been running a podcast devoted to the most deranged, sadistic, <laughs> fucked up movies known to human civilization, and y'all just keep it going, and you get phenomenal guests from around the world to, to chime in on these movies. You've been nice enough to invite me a few times, so fellas, welcome back to Wrong Real. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, it's always good to be here. Yeah, thank, thank you. And uh, our films are getting uh, progressively more. Uh, the degradation is is getting worse and worse. And eventually, uh, we might talk about a film that Dan's been wanting to talk about for a long time, Willow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, yes. know, you know you've reached the, uh, the, the true nadir of human civilization <laughs> when you explore the horrors of Willow. <laughs> Kaya! <laughs> no. <laughs> See, Bradley, I it's it's all leading to Willow. I mean, when I was in yeah. seventh grade, I think when it, I saw it in the theater and I loved it, and then when it came on HBO, I watched it every single time, and I'd watch it so mm. frequently I could screen it in my mind and like say the words as it yes. goes. And I was just I was you know D and D freak and fantasy junkie. I have not watched it in probably close to 30 years i don't know if right. i'll ever revisit it because there's no way in hell i'm gonna like it as much as i did back then but apparently no. there's a, like a willow tv show coming our way yeah i heard that but yeah just like you james like there's these there's all these little beats that just uh like i i, I always call my my kids idiots like <laughs> and Willow, they don't know what I'm you about. idiot exactly yeah like, uh, have you guys stopped let me know when you stop talking about willow oh, all right I'll, I'll i'll stop talking about willow right now i think we, we've, no, we've, we've we've exhausted that movie already no i just uh i teased dan because he likes he likes normal films we actually yes. 
just to confuse people about our podcast a little bit more, we we're going to do a series called uh, Normal Films with Dan and Brad. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about some of the movies that Dan's been wanting to talk about for <laughs> yeah. being half. We're going to cover a lot of like Nora Ephron films. and Oh, Jesus. <laughs> no, I love talking about fucked up movies, but I don't know if I could do it all the time the way y'all do i mean i'm kind of in awe that y'all been able to sustain it as long as you have and you keep finding new frontiers to explore yeah and you don't get burnt out on the subject because for every movie that i tackle like last house on the left i'll balance it out by talking about like bogey and bacall or something just Mm. you know completely on the other end of the spectrum and so yeah i need when it comes to movies i think of them as like you know like food, you just I, I like to sample a lot of different flavors, and I need contrast. I fancy myself a bit of an expert on the on the sadistic movies, but y'all really at this point have tackled hundreds upon hundreds. Like, are there any of these movies that you still regard as like the holy grail, where it's like abandon all hope, ye who enter here, because you're about to really get your just your hair turned white. It it's really like for me. The, Willow. The, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. The the two the two things that we tackled that that were really the toughest um, w- with you James very early on we covered the new French extremity and that was that was tough um, and just recently with our friend uh, Perry Rowland we covered some Cat three films um, out of. Uh, uh, Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 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 And also, along those lines, when I was on your show recently, I asked you about one of them and I completely forgot the name. So, what is the one that you mentioned that was like truly like, you know, like Satan's anus? Is that Red to Kill, Bradley? Yeah, that movie's yeah. fucked up. Red <laughs> to Kill? Red? A Red to, to Kill. kill. Yes. There's, a, there's Red to Kill. <laughs> Don't. This is where I. I don't know how we ended up doing it because uh, we were d- doing the DMs and I was like, "Hey Perry, oh, we're going to do a Cat Three episode. You, you want you into it?" And he's like, "I'm in." And then he uh, uh, he we started talking about Cat Three movies and it was really exciting. Define Cat and Three it, Cat Three movies for people because I didn't learn about this categorization until I went to Buttonamathon in Austin and they showed one Cat Three movie and it was called The Fruit Is Swelling and it's basically the premise of hmm. Big. But instead of a boy turning into a man, it was a girl turning into a woman. And what made it so controversial is that she turns into a really hot woman. So then you have all these men who are lusting after her, but she still is an innocent, naive young girl. And then the weirdest thing is, like, I think it's her swimming coach who she's in love with. She finally turns back into a little girl, waits like five years until she's actually a woman. And then she and her swimming coach get together in the pool and just get it on for the climax of the movie. But yeah, it earned its category three rating, but it was all played for laughs. Like, there was nothing where you're like, ooh, y'all just went to evil territory. It was like, you know. <laughs> but there were some people who walked out in the movie. They said, look, we're, I'm just not in the mood to watch a category three movie. Yeah, yeah. So, I think they well, Dan, Dan, you you give the definition of it uh, probably a little bit better because I'll just go right into describing terrible scenes. Well, you know, <laughs> my because these this episode we did was kind of my first real deep foray into this, and category three is is kind of like the Hong Kong X rating. So you're you're talking about the most taboo subjects. And but not in, like a dirty, like uh, like a naughty ex. Right. Even though it, there's some it, it naughty. It would be bits. more like our, um, sorry, like nowadays our NC-17, right? So the the violence and or sexuality is so extreme that it you know should not be viewed by anyone. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. on Wikipedia right now. I'm in Hong Kong, the classic Category 3 movie. No one younger than 18 years of age are permitted to rent, purchase, or watch this movie in a theater. So, yeah, just like yeah. a hard cutoff, whereas obviously our rated R, and the, if you're with your parents, you can go. Yeah, so so Perry gave us the uh, – uh, he read the synopsis of Red to Kill. Oh, no, he said Red to Kill, and I read the synopsis, and I immediately was like, no. <laughs> no. And we ended up ta- I don't know how we ended up talking about it, but it's well, it's, what it's, hor- was, it's a horrible synopsis. We, we, the, we, the there was worst. too much time in between that DM conversation and the actual recording of the episode. Because you, you what, already used up all your material before you started no, recording. <laughs> what happened for me was like at first I was like, no way, we're not doing Red to Kill. And then over time my curiosity got to me. And all of a sudden it was like all right, it's been like two weeks. I've been thinking about this movie. I'm actually going to watch it, and uh, it it was it was it was a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's one of those things where I no longer have the craving for these movies, but I do have this weird competitive thing where anytime I hear about a cool controversial exploitation film or whatever mm-hmm. the case from any country from any era, if anybody out there is talking about it and I haven't seen it, then I immediately get this like. I don't know, feeling of like one-upsmanship, and I feel like I've been one-upped, and so then I have to go out and see it, and so I'm going to have to see this fucking thing, so if I end up in the loony bin, I'm blaming it on you guys. All right. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Run, it's a little confusing, but Run and Kill is also another, it's another one. Is but that another Category they, 3 film? Yeah, yes. yeah, it's another category, and I think it's by the same, is it by the same dude? I can't remember now. I can't remember. But, I'm trying to yeah, wipe Billy a lot of it. Billy Hinshing Tang is the director of Red Yeah, I think Kill. it's Billy T- Billy Tang. And he's got yeah, sh- he's, he's got like 40 credits. So yeah, he's got t- Oh yeah, Running Kills 1993, Red to Kills yeah. 1994. Yeah, and and Run and Kill has one of the most like if if you're a an owner of a, a I say say owner as in if you have fathered or mothered a small child i would not recommend to uh, to watch this film it has one of the most uh, horrifying scenes i've ever seen so uh, dan hey remember that scene <laughs> yeah 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 uh little child being uh burned because they it's don't like a they don't flinch scene. yeah and a, a, you know a little child gets burned alive in front of her father and kind of what you were alluding to um James, where I think with this um, Fruit of Swelling movie, you said that there was kind of a comedic beat to it. That was one of the really disturbing things about these movies is they did add all these kind of like goofy, almost like Keystone Cop level uh, comedic elements, um, sometimes while the rape was going on. So... Uh, It it was... It was like like every time... Every time uh, rape happens, there's like cartoons playing in the background. Well, that I think what, what, what y'all are getting at, though, is this point is very much hammered home and Last House on the Left where unconventional music choices and mm-hmm. strange, strange, t- yeah. like scenes that feel like a tonal mismatch with what preceded it somehow manages to heighten the horror and make it all the more memorable.
If you just tried to be grim and dark and morose every, all the way through, you would kind of just get numb to it, I think. But the, because yeah. Last House on the Left has these mo- these strange, unusual moments that really catch you off guard, it makes the disturbing sequences all the more impactful, at least to me. So who knows? Maybe somewhere nearly 50 years ago, some of these Hong Kong filmmakers saw Last House on the Left. Yeah, yeah and we, we don't only talk about fucked up movies, uh, you know. <laughs> Well, you recently had Lisey Triple Russell on to talk about the devils. I mean, that's a fucked up yep. movie, but it's also like an artistic masterpiece. Yeah, and that was the uh, the capstone, Dan, to sound fancy, nice of our uh, series that we did on Ken Russell, where we did a episode on his '60s films, '70s films, '80s films, all with different guests, and then we did the devils, and Lisey fucking. Uh, joined us for every single episode. Yeah, she's great. She's been on Run Real a few times and uh, always makes me laugh my ass off. She's just so much fun to talk to and yeah. gives a great presentation. I saw her, I can't remember if it was a Q&A and a presentation or both or, or a mix of the two, but I saw, I, I, first time I met her was during a screening of Altered States up at the uh, Film Society of Lincoln Center. And I remember I was sitting there in my chosen seat and I hear this voice coming in like, Jay! I was like, what's going on? I see this woman walking in with an entourage. I was like, oh, that must be Lisi. So we took up like an entire row. <laughs> and then we rented a couple of vans and got a couple of cars together and had this like, I don't know, just like this giant like caravan that went up to Yonkers for a screening of the devils. And like Chris Funderburg was there and Marcus oh, Penn and John Cribbs and a bunch of familiar faces. And mm. that was one of the best movie going experiences I've had with a crowd. Because when you go to that Alamo Draft House, 
No phones are allowed. If you turn on a device, they throw your ass out. And so it's like just bliss in heaven. Because even, it's funny now, even if people don't turn on their devices, I have like device anxiety where I'm not even watching the movie. I'm like scanning the crowd. Like, is there any son of a (laughs) bitch in here? You're on their device. I'm going to fucking murder them. Ah." And so I just. uh, But that sounds like a lovely, uh, lovely experience. And actually, uh, Marcus and Christopher helped out with the Ken Russell uh, series and Stephanie Crawford did. And then Patrick Horvath helped with the devils. So it's kind of like we, yeah, we didn't see people in person and we didn't rent a van and go to Yonkers or anything, but we, (laughs) we did it digitally. And what, where did you find your version of the devils? Because to my knowledge, there's still not a complete version of the devils available to stream anywhere. Dan, to quote, uh, to quote, uh, somebody, uh, uh, we had to ask the Yugoslavian. <laughs> <laughs> because the closest I ever got was a BFI DVD of it where mm-hmm. there's one scene that was missing. And there's a great documentary on there with Mark Kermode and Ken Russell talking yeah. about it and talking about where the missing scene was. And somehow, magically, the scene with the low resolution was on YouTube. And so I just watched the DVD, DVD get to the point where the scene was supposed to be, watch it. And then some fucker stole the DVD. I think I lent it to Mikhail, my co-founder. He never gave it back. And I don't know. He probably never even watched it. Mikhail used to, he used to always borrow DVDs (laughs) and comics from me and then never bring them back. So I'm going to blame it on him rightly or wrongly. Yeah. So we did, we did scour uh, the dark web and were able to, to watch a stream of uh, the devils with. The devils is, it's special though, because they, uh, just here in the United States, uh, you can't get the version with the with the outtakes. There's two yeah. scenes: rape, the rape of Christ scene and the femur scene. And uh, but overseas, you can. Uh, yeah. So if you have an all region player, uh, you can you can get the DVD with those scenes and you can play it. So there are websites. Not, I mean, frankly, they aren't too too dark web. The, yeah, like, yeah. The little, we, the yeah, little lock just... symbols on. <laughs> when we go to some of these websites, but uh, oftentimes uh, you uh, everything's in foreign languages. But if you're if you're eager enough, you can find just about anything anything these days. But we we found a pretty decent stream, and uh, you know we were we were able to watch it. And uh, I encourage because uh, I don't know how fucking long it's going to be until until we get this like shutter. Uh, just released it. Oh, very yeah. cool! Coincidentally, uh, to, uh, on the first, and we recorded our Devils episode yesterday. Yeah, that's a the, movie that really has come on strong, like in the age of social media. Because I can remember in the ni- late '90s when I first saw it on VHS, and it was a really butchered, heavily censored copy. And I didn't I mean there was, I wasn't on social media at the time because it didn't exist. But I never really heard anybody talking about it. But it seems like for whatever reason, over the last ten years, the Devil's reputation deservedly has just skyrocketed, which has been a, a huge thrill to watch take place. Yeah, it, it's it's like it's gained like its its current cult status. I think you know, being that it you couldn't find a good copy of it, you know, for for the longest time. Um, so it it definitely fell out. Um, in comparison to Con Russell's other movies that you could, you know, easily get, like Altered States, um, but yeah, I I love seeing this kind of revival of it, um, like word of mouth, uh, you know, almost, uh, you know, bringing it bringing it back from well, the dead. It's impossible. It's impossible to see it and not have 
an, an astonishing emotional reaction. So you immediately right. say, oh my God, I just saw the craziest fucking movie. And <laughs> it's like this transcendent work of art at the same time. Oh yeah. So, yeah. And, and it's uh, emotionally speaking. And I think that's what, what makes it uh, so special and so storied today is the fact that it was a truly transgressive film, mm-hmm. but it wasn't done to be a transgressive film, it was done as high art and yeah. everybody involved was 125,000% including Jarman and Vanessa Redgrave and Oliver Reed. And uh, Ken Russell was peaking at that point yeah. in time. Yeah, he was, you know? he was so goddamn good. Yeah, I missed that. A few filmmakers like Lars von Trier will still do that where you've got a film with a decent budget and great production value where they'll really still go for the hardcore transgressive experience whether they're talking about right. nymphomaniac or the house that jack built and gaspar noe to a lesser degree because he mm-hmm. doesn't work on quite the same scale so there are a few filmmakers out there that like that still but there are not a lot of them but maybe this is the best pivot point to start talking about west craven who admittedly when he made this film last house on the left he talks about how he was trying to shake off a lot of his uh, very rigid Baptist upbringing, but at the same time, mm-hmm. he also was feeling incredible frustrations with the Vietnam War, and he had some experience working in like low-budget, hardcore porn films, but he basically wanted to make a movie that would kind of defy all conventions. And people need to remember that this came out before Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It came, came out long before the slasher genre took off. This is not even a slasher movie, but this is one of the really, like the first horror movies that really went for it. And from what we mm. understand of the screenplay, which has never been published, they actually toned it down because the original screenplay yeah. was going to be both gore and hardcore sex and like cannibalism all mixed into one. Mm-hmm. And prior to making it, they said, let's, let's scale back on the sex and just make it about violence and murder. And their intentions, whether they were successful or not, were to try to make a film that was so horrifying that it actually would make people less blasé or less desensitized to the violence they were seeing on a nightly basis on the news. Mm. But maybe before we get into just like the full deep dive of the behind the scenes, like just as movie fans who watch a lot of crazy movies, does this movie work for y'all just as moviegoers here in 2021? Yeah, absolutely. Um, This is, you know, uh, it's funny. I have a strange relationship with horror because I didn't truly start watching horror movies till I was around 31 or 32. I hated horror uh, when I was growing up. Um, and he's I, 33 I, now. I, yeah. So, um, so sometime around, yeah, in my early thirties, I finally said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm going to watch, um, uh, I, pro- I was probably thinking of, oh, well from Wes Craven, um, I had never seen a nightmare on Elm street, you know? And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to watch these, um, because I had seen audition and that really like jazzed me. I was like, "Wow, this is like." <laughs> you started with audition when it comes to horror movies. <laughs> I I had seen like Stephen King stuff. Gotcha. I had seen Stephen King stuff. I had seen like um, Scream and, and I know what you did last summer and you know like kind of popcorn horror mm-hmm. flicks. But I if I had seen over a hundred horror movies when I was thirty, I would be surprised. And. Um, so once I once I determined that basically I was kind of a snob. I, I really thought horror was garbage, 
um, wh- once I determined that it could be artistic and could be meaningful, um, I was like, I shit, I, I really have to like find all these great, you know, storied movies and, and start consuming. And, um, last house on the left was one of the, the big ones, you know, that, it, that in my research, I was like, okay, I guess I have to see this movie too. Um, and it definitely, like, it was, uh, it was on another level of, the, of anything that I had seen up to that point. And I don't actually think I've watched it since then. So for this, this show, um, this was like my first time in, uh, you know, 10 years watching it. And, um, are you throwing milk buns to an animal? <laughs> yeah, I had to throw my pen at my dog. I could hear this panting in the background. And I saw oh, you chucking something. I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that so people didn't think I was uh, touching myself to the to the tune of Dan's voice. So keep talking. Keep talking. Like, don't stop. You, don't stop. Please stop. It's like I, um, I'll, an- I'll answer it in about five minutes. I'll answer that question. So yeah, you know, I watched it for the first time. Uh, in 10 years this week after, you know, consuming close to a thousand horror movies in the last 10 years. Um, and it, it was, it may be even more effective than when I first watched it. I agree. It's a weird thing where I've seen many a strange movie in my film history journey. And I first saw it on VHS, really grainy back in college. And I kind of, didn't even really know what to make of it because I could barely see what the fuck I was watching. Mm. And then maybe five, six years ago, I can't remember why, there was another episode of Wrong Real where it came up where I watched it, but I, we didn't do the deep dive on it. And remember the, the, the big thing that really just got its hooks in me was the, at the time was the music. But now I got the Arrow video fully restored or as fully restored as we're going to get cut of it. Mm. I mean, it, it knocked me right on my ass, and it's a weird thing where every time I watch it, I still am kind of hoping that somehow the girls are going to make it. But maybe for people out there who have not seen Last House on the Left, Bradley, what is the story of The Last House on the Left? Well, I don't know what their fucking names are, but it basically, <laughs> basically the the story is uh, the it's um, two... Mary and Phyllis, Mary Collingwood. Okay, Colling Collingwood is the name where at the beginning of the movie somebody says she's got, she's got the most sweetest face I've ever seen or something like that, yeah. and it immediately goes to her taking a shower. Yeah, you know, so so the movie kind of uh, kicks into the exploitive stuff uh, pretty pretty quickly, and uh, so th- supposedly there are the two young ladies uh, who are eager to go see their uh, their favorite band, Bloodlust, I think it's called. Yeah, and uh, they, uh, you know, get it shows their uh, requisite uh, confrontations with their with their parents. You know, being like this, of like yeah. not wearing a bra and women's yeah. and, and all <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, basically, they talk about their nipples for five minutes, and then uh, so they go into town and uh, they want to score score some grass. Which for the kids out there, that is what weed is today. They used to call it grass. Right. So the uh, they found uh, this this fellow junior who's basically a junkie. Which the backstory of that Dan. Uh, in James is the uh, I always say Dan's name on our show, so I'll, I'll do that a bunch of times. Uh, uh, he's like uh, his name is like my safety net. 
I go, Dan. <laughs> but anyways, uh, Junior, I, I think he's like a, the kid of one of one of the characters. He's, he's the son of Krug. Okay, yeah. so yeah, the son of Krug. And at the time, David Hess, I think, was 36 years old. So I guess I could be, you know, Junior yeah, was like 16. It's a small stretch, but it, but it kind of works. But it's, yeah, I mean, and who knows? But maybe it's like a weird a, thing where he kind of is looking after an orphan. You don't really know, but he definitely, they are in a father-son type of relationship. Junior Stillo and Krug Stillo. And I wish they would have kind of expanded on that a little bit, because there's some fucked up shit later that would even seem even Blow more fucked up. Blow your brains out! Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, so, and spoil, talk about spoilery, and uh, that's, uh, you know, I guess this movie's been around long enough. You know, it's nearly people, 50 years. The, I mean, next year will be the 50th anniversary yeah. of this movie, which is astonishing. Yeah. When I first got into movies, movies that were 50 years old were from the golden age. Those were like, like Humphrey Bogart movies were 50 years old. So it just, right. it's crazy now that movies that are 50 years old are from like the most depraved, crazy part of like some history. With uh, So Junior sit on on it, his steps, uh, like strung out, and they sit, ask Junior for some grass. And, he's, and then he, he says, no, I don't got any. And then he got smart. Says, I got an ounce on me. Come on inside. They immediately lock the ladies in there and just start uh, messing with them. Eventually, they get him out to the woods, uh, kill one of them. Mm -hmm. Another one of them uh, ends up kind of being killed. And then it goes into the Virgin Virgin Spring. Yeah, the Bergman flick from 1960. Yep. Yeah, it goes into the, uh, which I think is based on an old medieval tale or something like that. Yes. And the, uh, so it goes into that plot where the, uh, uh, now the girl, did she, she survived, right? Well, and it depends on which cut you've seen. There's a cut of the film where Mary is found by her parents still alive, but on the Arrow video version that I saw, she is dead when they find her, but they put two See, and two I together. See, I saw it, but she was still alive. Yeah, I, I mean, this movie she had so alive. many different cuts floating around because theaters would chop them up. People would freak out and remove objectionable scenes, but for a long right. time, it was hard to know what is the definitive cut, and it was a you know $90,000 film made on the cheap, and it took a long time for Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham even to kind of settle on what is actually the, the cut of Last House on the Left. But the version that's on the hour of video is as close as we're going to get. And in that version, Mary's dead when the parents find her and they immediately go into their very elaborate revenge. The scheme. one I saw, I <laughs> yeah. think she was dead because, uh, I mean, alive and uh, uh, consulting her friend, the Yugoslavian. I found that what I do is I look for the version that is the longest mm. and I try I go for that one. So the one that I watched was a hundred uh, was an hour and 31 minutes. Oh, interesting. I think. My, I think my version's like 88 minutes. Yeah. So it's an hour and 27 minutes is, uh, is the, uh, is all the virgin, uh, <laughs> virgins <laughs> slip, uh, versions and the, uh, uh, the one that I watched was 131. So, hmm. uh, so, and it was a really, it was a really good quality stream and, okay. you know, but that, so basically this is kind of where, uh, what's his name? Sean Cunningham. Yeah. The director of Friday the 13th. Yeah. So yeah. that it kind of goes into like tech, Texas chainsaw. This is pre Texas chainsaw, uh, you know, sort of like, uh, 
slasher, you know, a little cartoony. You know, Sean's idea to use the chainsaw, Wes Craven wanted uh, Krug to be tied down and have uh, Mary's father, who's a doctor, to take advantage of all of his medical expertise and say, oh, well, if you cut this artery, this happens. Or if you cut this, oh, that'd this be happens. Wonderful. And Sean, which would have been really cool, but Sean Cunningham was like, Wes, just bring in a chainsaw, which of course they proceeded to bring in an actual chainsaw onto the fucking set, which you would not get to do today. But in yeah. 1971, 72, when you're making a $90,000 film like in Sean's parents' house by the lake, then you can just whip out a chainsaw and, and get down dirty. <laughs> yeah, so it's basically, it gets kind of cartoony, and then uh, Krug gets off, and in the process, uh, he tells his son to shoot himself in the head. It's a, it's 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 fairly grisly, mm. you know, and it, and it's and it's kind of violent, but it's it's more straw dogsy, you know, kind of at that point, uh, you know, where it's kind of like a siege, you know, fighting uh, good guys, bad guys. But what makes it so unsettling for me is that it feels it's shot like an amateur documentary movie, which is what right. Wes Craven had experience doing. And he would do these really long takes. He didn't he admits he didn't know how to shoot a movie. So he would just do long takes from three different angles. And then when he got into the editing room, he's like, oh, you can't cut this way. It's not how you make a movie. So you have these crazy long takes, which are very immersive and it's very right. unsettling. And it almost feels like a weird mix of like snuff film from the dark web that's going to at any moment go into like some strange like porn film that may or may not be legal. It just the, <laughs> yeah. the amateurish quality of it makes it more unsettling to me. And so I think that's one that gives it such eerie power this many decades later. And I think they were going for that uh, su- supposedly uh, that cinema there you know sort of sort of thing because of the almost like mimicking a little bit the Vietnam footage that was uh, shown to everybody and we talked a little bit about this on uh, the episode we did on the devils where we were talking about like what's the point of these films you know these ultra violent films and we even played a uh, clip of Oliver Reed talking about it and his his answer was kind of uh, like along the lines of we just you have to express yourself you know you have to respond to it somehow mm-hmm. and in this film they responded to it by uh, meditating on the horror of death and murder mm-hmm. and uh, killing of innocence and uh, that's what I think makes this movie special. There's probably 10 minutes of it that goes into territory that, you know, is, is transcendent of exploitation films mm-hmm. where it is something where you're just like, fuck. Yeah.
and it's uh, that's what I think that's why people are still talking about it today, why it's still notorious. And actually, I think that's why the Devils is talked about so much today, uh, because it really gets into a lot of emotional uh, aspects that you wouldn't normally get in an exploitation, in a typical exploitation film. Yep. Yeah, yeah. and this it really represents that time, like you were saying, with the, you know, they were seeing all that footage of, of Vietnam and, you know, there was such a, a big paradigm shift in the world. And I can't remember if it was Craven or Cunningham um, called it this, the coming of age that nobody wanted. Yeah. It's like, this is the end yeah. result of, this is the dark side of the hippie movement. A lot of people say like that the Sharon Tate murders was like the dark side of the hippie movement. That's like, like where it all mm. kind of culminated. Right. Like it didn't end in flower power. It didn't end in like enlightenment. It didn't end in utopia. It ended in like murder and anarchy and chaos. Yeah. And I think you could also make an argument that hippie culture, they carved the gravestone on hippie culture when they made Last House on the Left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it's a it's almost like a genre. Like I was thinking that uh, what genre this is, uh, it's not necessarily a Manson genre because it's not culty. You know, mm-hmm. it's not about a cult, but it kind of is. It's like a crude cult. You know, there's always like the the head of the hippie hoodlum gang. Yeah, without Krug, there is no group. Right, right, right. So it's like a. It, it's almost like a murdering the '60s, you know, sort yeah. of uh, genre. And, we, and there's we, there's a handful of them. Yeah, we we kind of uh, when we were talking about you know what we we're gonna what we we're gonna cover for this episode, we had talked about um, maybe doing uh, what's the Altamont movie? Give me shelter. I uh, love right? the documentary. Right. Yeah, right. It's one of the so, earliest episodes of Wrong Real. We tackled it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and, like, and I saw I saw that movie in the theater. By the way, when it, in the seventies, you guys. Yeah, I first heard wow. about but, it. And yeah. Cable Guy was like, "That night, the Hell's Angels had their way. Tonight, <laughs> yeah. it's my turn." And anyway, it's fantastic stuff. <laughs> yeah, but you you do you do see like this this progression like through the through that movement. You know, if if you go through like the the concert films, you know, the Innocence of Monterey the wild and you know kind of dangerous times of of woodstock and then it all comes to an end at uh at altamont yeah i guess it's one of the things where i was so naive and kind of infatuated with hippie culture in high school because it was kind of the tail end of like the aging hippie jam bands like like uh, yeah like the grateful dead were still touring i, mean, I saw the grateful dead play the the summer that jerry died and things like that and so i had this it just in high school. Anytime these big bands would come through, if you wanted to party for a couple of days, you would go out to these giant. I mean, you, sometimes you wouldn't even right. go into the venue; you'd just hang out in the parking lot and like mm-hmm. suck on balloons and all kinds of silly and eat nasty grilled cheeses and everything. But it was just a way to. Yeah. I knew it was a way to get wasted, and I had a kind of a thing for like hippie chicks. But as I've gotten older and you start to realize, oh, like the hippie culture had a a dark side to it as well. And some of it yeah. manifests itself in violence and chaos. And while I wouldn't necessarily say these are hippies, but they seem to be like where hippies go to die in terms of this, this weird yeah. family unit that has, uh, that has formed around, uh, around Krug. And um, when, that- yeah, when we, we did an episode with EF Bartlam on um, punk, um, <laughs> it, it was about punk, punk music and yeah. the punk scene and stuff. And we talked about how, with almost any um, movement, there's like a, a, a pure form 
and then like a degre- like a degradation or a poisoning of of that movement where all of a sudden you get you know these hangers on and and people on the fringe right. who 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 go along you know like like you're saying, hey, uh, I like hippie chicks, you know, <laughs> uh, maybe I could score with one. So all of a sudden you start following this, this oh, yeah. and, and, but you're and, not really part of like the ideals of it, you know? Right. And, and, and that's and how I feel about that. movies from hell. Like I, I try to create this wonderful thing with wrong reel and suddenly this new podcast emerged on the fringe <laughs> just talking about, um, what, what, what the fuck is that category three filming? Red is red yeah. to kill. <laughs> oh yeah. Y'all went to the, the dark side. I would not recommend anybody. Y'all, y'all destroyed the whole movement. We are poisoning the well. <laughs> right. And, and, but, uh, you know, my, my own personal experience, you know, I was in my early twenties in LA and Hollywood. And I saw like the rise of like underground rave culture, mm. you know? And I remember, you know, back in the early days, everybody was getting that, getting the really good, like the real ecstasy. And it was made in Texas of all places. The <laughs> ecstasy was. And, uh, <clears throat> but they would get the really good ecstasy. And like, uh, you'd go to a club and like 4,000 people were like in, in love with each other. It was really mm. weird. But yeah, like, it, well, it's, I, it's, a, it's a powerful drug. And yeah, you just want to give each other yeah. shoulder massages. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, but it's like, uh, but it was like, uh, it, there was something happening and it was like a beautiful thing. And I remember looking around saying, this is so beautiful. You know, and then somebody then, turns the lights on. You're like, Ugh, this yeah, place exactly. is disgusting. But like a year and a half later, uh, you know, we would, I was still going to some of these things cause I had a lot of friends who were uh, DJs and musicians and stuff like that. And, uh, there was like all these like zombie children walking around like huffing, mm. <laughs> you know? So it went from, this beautiful, like in a year and a half, this right. beautiful, like love culture thing to, you know, zombie children, <laughs> you know, probably like <laughs> most of them are homeless now or have been or dead, you know? So it's like, it, it's weird how shit gets fucked up so quickly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's almost like, uh, humans <laughs> can't, ha- can't yeah. handle. We're nice not, we're shit. not allowed to have nice things or we end up messing <laughs> up. And I feel like there's a great scene in this movie that really captures what you're talking about, where they've stabbed to death Phyllis and they've shot Mary and she's off in the, I mean, this whole lake, this is a lake where people go to get murdered. I mean, it's like the most murder-esque murder lake <laughs> in, in movie history, but they pause for a second. They're kind of looking at themselves and they're, almost, and they're looking out, they're covered in blood and they've been just like, I mean, all of them have been indulging in rape and violence for the better part of like 24 hours. And they had this weird moment of self-reflection, like mm-hmm. that, like to quote Anchorman, like that escal- escalated quickly. <laughs> like they, just, yeah. they, they can't yeah. even believe what they did. And I imagine it's like, you know, after a riot or a lynching or whatever, when all of a sudden you have like this like overwhelming guilt and then they have this weird, like they're kind of like hiding their clothes and changing their identity. And so they do have a moment of like self-reflection. However, it takes them a whole couple of hours before they're right, right. back to their crazed, violent ways. Well, uh, well, there's a, uh, it's funny because a lot of these movies, uh, like horror movies that are transcendent, like the devil's, uh, you think like, oh, the devils, like all these possessed nuns. No, the devils were the powers, you know, that were mm-hmm. fucking with people. Those were the devils. So it was almost like a, a double meaning, you know, to, to to that. And with this film, it's not like the uh, the people who are being killed are the ones who are suffering. 
it's the killers who are suffering. Although I would it, argue that Phyllis suffers plenty when they're stabbing no, her repeatedly I mean, and yeah, disemboweling and her. Just, <laughs> right, but it's not just a typical slasher movie. Yeah, it's know, not a slasher you, movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah, where you have like, a, you know, almost like a cartoon character going out and murdering people, causing suffering. What it and and this is what makes uh, yeah, if Krug makes, had a mask, you could maybe call it a slasher movie. But right, if anything, more bad guys get killed than good guys. Two innocent girls get killed, and then the the four right. miscreants all end up right. uh, but, losing their but lives. James, the, the scene that you were talking about, where they're standing there uh, with blood on themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's said they weren't just uh, putting people through hell. They were going through hell themselves as people who are dealing with, you know, having to recognize the fact that they were extremely fucked up people. And yeah, it's a rare moment of self-reflection in the killers right? in a horror movie. It almost never happens. And the music is wildly mismatched with so the weird. scene. And so while... but. <laughs> Now that I've seen the movie a couple times, though, I think it's one of the best horror soundtracks of any movie that I've ever seen. It makes it so much more disturbing. Like the shower scene in the beginning with that haunting intro just mm. sends chills right up my neck and spine. But then even during like the closing credits when they're showing all the actors' names and they're trying to make it almost feel like you just saw like uh, friggin' Smokey and the Bandit. Like, I didn't just watch Smokey and the Bandit. I just watched <laughs> yeah. The Last House on the Left. <laughs> and there's a hillbilly song, basically, about murdering children in the in the middle of it, <laughs> it you know? And, uh, yeah. yeah, and he's... Uh, now, have you guys uh, uh, looked into Hess much, his a background? Bit, I, mean, I watched on the, on the Arrow Video DVD, there's a shitload of documentaries. There are enough documentaries where it actually takes longer to watch the documentaries than it does to watch the movie, but they talk about how... You know, he had this very strange audition where they drove him down, and it was one of these like 110 degree days in New York, and they'd covered him all these sweaters to make him look bigger. And he was <laughs> right. having like an absolute panic attack by the time he arrived because it was his friend who played, you know, the Cobra Kai guy. It was, yeah, Martin Cove. Yeah. yeah, Martin Cove was the one who recruited him. And after he came in and was like freaking out and screaming, they're like, all right, look, we love you. You've got the part. And then somehow they got on the subject of music and they hired him then and there to do the score. So, Dan, as the resident musician, and guitar player, what are your thoughts on David Hess's unique contributions to the score of the film? So, you know, kind of the, the things that I had remembered uh, from, from the score were the goofy songs. You know, the, the Sadie and Krug and they're gonna go kill and da 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 right? Is that the one with the kazoo when they're in the car? Yeah, right, exactly. She's sitting in his lap and kind of bouncing around. That could kind of kind of a turn on watching Richard Dreyfus ended up marrying that actress. Yeah. He probably, that was his favorite scene. Sure. <laughs> well, they say as the big family joke when the, with all the kids growing up, she, her p- kids would always make fun of her for being in the worst movie ever made. <laughs> yes. I think she should have pushed back though, because I don't think it's anywhere close to the worst movie ever made. I think it's when in the horror genre, one of the most memorable films ever made, but oh, that definitely. was just the way they addressed the elephant in the room with their kids. But, but uh, sorry, Dan, I'm talking on top of you. Go on, no, go on with the chlorophyll. No, no. But yeah, so, uh, you know, l- Watching the movie this time around, I I was blown away, especially by the kind of ballads, the like the murder ballads that um, that Hess put together. Um, and these are not, you know, you, you you think you're you're picking up just some guy who's an actor in a low budget movie, and maybe he can play guitar. These are complicated songs. Yeah. Um, now you're all alone. I I don't know how many uh, musicians. Uh, 
uh, listen to this podcast. But the chord progression is a one five one four major six to a minor two. Okay, so that's weird. Then we go back to the one. We go to a major three. We go to a minor six, and then we modulate to a minor one, a six, a minor four, and a five. It's insane. It's very. There were a four and a five year old minor in this. Yes. Yeah. It's very. Um. It's very Paul Williams, and like Paul Williams is one of those guys who who can craft like a. a happy little pop song that is like this major work of art, right? And this this stuff is on that level. Well, you think you're fancy by saying all those really complicated music <laughs> things. I actually, I did a little bit of research, and he was actually a songwriter in the 50s, and yeah. he, he co-wrote songs for Elvis Presley, Elvis, yep. Pat Boone, and he did the first recorded uh version of all shook up oh no which, way yeah which uh in 1956 which elvis turned into a number one hit song and god i, I mean just imagine and hess uh seemed like a really thoughtful fellow mm-hmm. you know the uh the interviews that i've seen of him and he's a, a i think he's a little bit bummed out you know that his uh his exploitation film you know haunted him you know, and he he did other ones. Too, he said he was living you know? in New York when this movie came out. The posters were all over the city because it went from being this ninety thousand dollar film that was going to be a bomb and a couple of little like driving theaters to becoming a very successful film and people lining around yep. the blocks. But he said his p- face was on these posters around the city, and that people actually thought that he was Krug. Like they just they thought he was like. It's one <laughs> of those movies that feels like, almost like like Blair Witch, like fake documentary. So it just got a very eerie vibe that mm-hmm. doesn't feel like your typical escapist entertainment. And I, so I totally get why some people would be unsettled by him. And so, yeah, it's hard to live down the part. And if he had been worn a hockey mask or a hood or whatever, then maybe it would have been different. But he's mm-hmm. one of these crazy iconic horror characters who's just, it just, he's just scary on his own. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then his name is Krug. You know, yeah, I mean, that, it's Krug, which of course became Freddy Krueger, uh, you know, a little over a decade later with, uh, you know, Wes Craven's signature work. It rests on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell. Here is the first motion picture to offer to the daring a look into the final maddening space between life and death. The last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Sights and sounds far beyond anything you've tested. The last house on the left. To avoid fainting, Keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Take as much as you can. Only a movie. (laughs) 
Well, Dan, we talked a little bit about the music, but let's talk also about just like some of the sound effects in this because there's one scene that really gets me when they catch up with Phyllis after she's been running and running and running. She sees the road. You think she's going to get mm-hmm. away. And there's this incredible jump scare as Krug steps in the frame with a fucking machete. Yeah. And they proceed just, it's, I mean, it's the three, obviously they're four killers, but really it's the, the three, the three heavies proceed to attack her from all directions. So you've got obviously um, Krug and you've got Fred Weasel played by Fred J. Lincoln, <laughs> Weasel, the porn yep. star. And you got Sadie played by Jeremy Rain, who I think is actually kind of the dark horse for the scariest of the three, the way she's got that crazy hair and the makeup. Mm-hmm. And she's always kind of just leering into the camera with like blood on her face. But the way they start going at her and the sound effects we hear as they stab her, mm. they really knock me on my ass. Yeah, and this this was th- this is the scene as far as uh, I'm concerned, and um, it's the one where when, when like I said, I watched this about ten years ago, and this scene sort of melt. Party foul! Whose phone is ringing? Yeah, Someone's got like nine. an office. Like that sounds like an office phone, like an actual yeah. landline. It's it is. It's like it's my wife's phone. She won't give up the the thing. Hold there will on. come a day where the internet is down, and you'll be glad you got it. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Dan. He's got dogs. He's got phones. Uh, he's got Hubble. Heads are falling off. What are we doing here, Lloyd? Oh, Dan. That's funny. Uh, he normally doesn't have phones ringing. That's impressive. So. Well, I'm just amazed. I haven't even heard a landline ring in well over a year. So it's like... It's a weird thing where it's like just hearing a landline outside, unless you're like in a bank or whatever, like you never even hear landlines <laughs> ring anymore. So it's like, it's like a, from a bygone era. It's like hearing a cash register ching. Exactly. Ching. Yeah. <laughs> so this scene, I, I kind of melded both murders into one mm-hmm. in, in my mind. And the, the guts in this like freaked me out so much that I, I made them like, 10 feet long in, in, <laughs> in my memory. It was like they just took them out and they strewn them all <laughs> over jump, the pond. Jump rope. <laughs> exactly. It was like, in my mind, it was the absolute most over-the-top grotesque thing that you could imagine. And even though the reality of it was, was far more intimate, it was just as uh, shocking and effective. I mean, these... The... I guess they made the the guts with like prophylactics. Yeah, apparently uh, like sand, filled with sand. And, yeah, uh, they used like uh, red and blue food food coloring mixed with caramel syrup for the blood. Yep. but it works. It looks. I mean, oh, never at any point in this blood. movie does the blood always looks funky if it's too bright or too red. And yeah, it mm-hmm. needs to be nice and dark to be convincing. And like when they're carving Krug's name in Mary's chest, that's where the blood really looks real. Yeah. Oh yeah, and it's got the. I'm a. I am a connoisseur of movie <laughs> blood. It's got the right viscosity. I don't know if you've ever murdered somebody, but the blood it stays kind of uh, watery for a while before it starts to congeal, and uh, so the uh, the scene where they're cutting into her chest, uh, it's all kind of uh, watery. But then a little bit later you see the characters with smudges on their face and it's dried and dark. So it's like they, they put a lot of thought into the blood. And then 
Uh, and according you know, to Steve is... Miner, this a, there originally was a shot that was much clearer of the name. You actually could read it because in the version I have, you're seeing at an angle and you see her screaming, right. but you're not mm. even really sure what he's doing. And so Steve Miner says, of the, and he says, once again, there have been so many cuts and he doesn't know if his memory's playing tricks on him 50 years later, but he felt like there was a, a shot where they're looking down. You could really just see it. But what's crazy about having Steve Miner on this is like the location manager. So many people on this movie for a skeleton crew of like seven or eight people went on to all these big things. I mean, Steve Miner yeah. directed Friday the 13th, part two and three and house. And obviously yep. Sean Cunningham directed Friday the 13th, a runaway sensation. Wes Craven went on to big things. And then of course you got the Cobra Kai guy who's, Killing it on Netflix now, so hey, Martin yeah. Cove. So it's incredible that a, a skeleton crew of like nobodies, that almost all of them went on to like to really big things. Yeah, and this Fred, actually Fred J. Lincoln made like eight hundred porn films. I've got a bit of a bone <laughs> yeah. to pick with him though, because he's the only person who, in all the interviews about the making of, talks mad shit about the movie. Oh yeah, how much he hates the movie. How it's, he does this, he does this annoying thing where he wants to claim credit for all the good ideas, and <laughs> yeah. at the same time wants to talk shit about the movie. He's like, all right, either own the movie and say, oh, I had these helpful suggestions to achieve these shots, but it's one of those things where I don't think he's the world's smartest individual, and yeah. he doesn't have a leg to stand on because he was doing hundreds of hardcore porn films at that time. I'm sure the conditions under which those films were shot were not exactly up, up to up to today's ethical standards. So I think he's got zero grounds to criticize this movie in any way, shape, or form. And it just blows my mind that they keep interviewing him in all these documentaries because he's such an unlikable human being. Well, I think that's what I liked about it is like, he's, it's like, he wow, felt, this guy is such a dick. Yeah, he felt like a, a legitimate, like, fucking questionable character. Mm. You know, and the... Uh, uh, but he does but a good job in the I, movie. When he first pops the switchblade, when they first lock the girls in yeah. the hotel room, you're like, that, this guy's used that switchblade probably 500 <laughs> yes. times before. Yeah, he, yeah. he really sells that scene. Yeah, the, uh, you know, I want to talk a, a little bit about that, the uh, murder scene. You know, they, they happened the same, uh, same thing for me, Dan, where they kind of meld a little bit. Mm, yep. But the, uh, what got me when I first saw it, and there's a scene in uh, the movie Zodiac, uh, two, 2007 Fincher. Zodiac. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a scene where the Zodiac killer, you know, comes on uh, a couple. You it's know, terrifying. Picking, no, it's the most yeah. powerful scene in the movie by far. Yeah, yeah, and they're on their face, and he just does like basically soft. <laughs> I call it soft stabbing, and uh, mm -hmm. they do the same thing in in this scene where it's just like just gentle stabbing, you know. And but it's. Uh, it seems so real and it's a slow murder without cut a lot of cuts, you know, and it's just, uh, uh, it makes it really just kind of, uh, sad a little bit. You know, there's like a sadness, uh, to the murder, uh, outside of just the, uh, exuberance or excitement, you know, that a murder might have, yeah, there's you know, a say like in a Giallo, tone of melancholy that, kind of yeah. pervades the film that I think is what makes it so disturbing right. to so many people. Yeah. And I think, uh, uh, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, if you take out uh, uh, some of the scenes where, what's his fucking name, Dan? Uh, the, the, the killer, 
Leatherface? Leather, Leatherface? Leatherface. Okay, I thought he had another name. I thought it was Junior or something like that. I thought yeah. That was... Okay. Uh, <laughs> there's a scene where he's just sort of uh, looking out the window, you know, sort of like pensive, you know, mm-hmm. just, uh, and, you know, there's a couple little scenes like that in the movie that make it really kind of melancholy and sad, you know, yeah. but, and if you take out those things, it becomes cartoonish, you know, which is what I think is making... Uh, it's made these movies, you know, last, you know, and people are still talking about this shit 50 years later. And imagine, you know, I listened to a couple of podcasts and they were talking about how, you know, this is one of the most fucked up movies they've ever seen, you know, and it's a 50 year old movie, mm-hmm. you know, so that's pretty 12 that's pretty years impressive. after Psycho. So yeah. I, I always measure my fucked up movies in in years after Psycho. Um, which is, you know, crazy that, you know, they kind of opened the gate in 1960 with like Psycho and Peeping Tom. And then we were able to, in just 12 years, get to this level of, you know, depravity and intensity and shock. That's what's so shocking about this era. It's like in the early 70s. I think it's the most shocking period of filmmaking and movie history. But you would think that after all the kind of standards have been relaxed that it would take a little while for filmmakers to kind of warm up to and kind of get ready for these crazy movies. But it was mm. almost like water was building up behind a dam and suddenly like, oh, there's no censorship. We're going to make Last House <laughs> on the Left. It's like, whoa, that, that yeah. it came out of nowhere. Like just a couple of years prior, like 10 years prior, we we're making Sound of Music. Now we're, this is where, <laughs> this is where we are now. And the, it just the, the change from the 60s to the early 70s is so abrupt. And it's almost like at that point, collectively, everybody kind of got it out of their system because every once in a while you'll get these movies that go back there but it just feels like Mm. if you were to I guess catalog all the most fucked up movies ever made the majority of them are all clustered right around this period and I like I like exploitation movies that piss off the perverts Uh, they would go in during this period of time and expect just tons of boobs you know and yeah well you get some nudity in this i mean for me the saddest scene of this is when mary's asked to strip and she's this innocent young girl and her friend is a little bit more experienced you can tell she's like from a different family different kind of background and she's a little bit she kind of understands who these people are a little bit better but mary's just so overwhelmed and she's just weeping inconsolably as her friend takes her clothes off and her phyllis keeps saying like it's just you and me it's just you and me and she improvised those lines apparently. So there's nudity, but it's not titillation. It's just like it just not at all. heart goes right. out to this girl. Because like at the beginning of the film, she's 17 years old. She's looking in the mirror. And she's you can tell like, I am a woman now. I am pretty. I'm beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm going into the big city to go to a concert. She's having this moment where she finally feels like an adult. And of course, her first night out, this is what happens. And then to make it matters even worse... She gets killed across the street from her house. I mean, at one point she implores <laughs> the junkie, like, I, that, I live right across the street. Like, her parents are inside mm. making cakes, dancing around to silly music, and meanwhile, she's suffering the most horrible violence imaginable. Yeah, and, you know, the, the thing, too, like Bradley was saying, not just the, the sexual titillation, but the, the violent titillation that was going on in the grindhouses uh, at this time. You right. know, like, things like... This is much different than um, uh, Wizard of Gore and Blood Sucking yeah. Freaks and stuff. Where they Blood Sucking were... Freaks, it's like it's almost unwatchable. So I mean, not because it's it... shocking; it's just so amateur that you're like, yeah, I, I, I'm, and they, I'm you know, dumber they were, for watching. They were just this. trying to put as much 
like squishy guts and blood on right. the screen as possible. It's terrible. It's like and it's like the uh, the second grade paint blood. Yeah, a friend of mine. Yeah. We were watching that in college, and a friend of mine walked in right as somebody said, "Ah, so and so, the famous football player." And my friend was like, "I'm out. This is idiotic." And just made an about face and just walked right out of the room. But yeah, blood sucking freaks. Saw it twice when I was 19. I never need to see it again. I did yeah. like his uh, "Color Me Blood Red," which is kind of hilarious. I did watch watch that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but they're, the, they're they're fun and and whatnot, but they're they're not they're not real and, and visceral like uh, like these flicks. And I, in this movie, actually, ninety thousand dollars for a grindhouse movie basically is a, a pretty good budget, you know, back then. And the fact is, a, a movie theater chain that paid for it. Their idea back then was we will show double bills, and the first movie will be mainstream movies. The but the second film, the bottom half of the double bill, will be movies that we produce ourselves, and that way we won't have to share the revenue with the studios, right. and, and we'll clean up. And so Sean Cunningham had already had some success by doing things like The Art of Marriage and uh, another movie called Yeah, the White uh, the White Coat. Uh, yeah, basically where they like, pretend like these are like medical movies to help like sexual aids, etc. But <laughs> he started making these, and then he roped in uh, roped in Wes Craven. The fact that Wes Craven never written a story, and this is what he chose to... I mean, the fact that Sadie, in the original script, chopped off a girl's breast and ate it. Like, that's one of the few scenes that we know. And he has kept that the original screenplay behind locked doors ever since. And now he's gone, so I don't, think, I don't know if we'll ever read it. But apparently that original script was quite a page-turner. And there's been a couple of movies where they've had that happen, like the House of Jack built. And it's, it's, not, it's not pleasurable. You know, you know, you know, watching watching that. So I'm kind of glad they didn't. I'm kind of glad they kept they kept the sex out. You know, I think they, well, they shot or, some. Or the titillating. The sex. Arrow Video Blu-ray has some scenes which I didn't know existed anymore, but they have no sound. There's like 45, maybe 50 minutes of outtakes and just like B footage that has hmm. no sound, no synchronized sound. And toward the end, there's a couple minutes. So the scene where Phyllis lies down beside Mary and whispers in her ear, like, I'm going to make a run for it. And when I run, like, you run too. During that scene, um, what's, her, what's her name? A Sadie is actually going down on Mary. And Mary is complete, full frontal nudity in that scene. And so you can actually see these scenes play out. And there are some, some other takes where Krug and uh, his buddy are kind of taunting her and like, like kind of drilling a knife very like very lightly into Phyllis's back while she fondles her friend. It's nothing. It's kind of amateur early seventies explicit porn, but no mm. like anatomical detail or anything like that. But once again, I had no idea the footage even existed until I got this Arrow video Blu-ray. Hmm. Yeah, and the uh, uh, Arrow does a, a nice job. They stuff. might be the best. I mean, every Criterion, of course, is the Criterion. It's like the, the gold standard. But, man, Arrow really does a good job with their packages. And they have a streaming service now. Why oh, didn't you we know. know? Is it yeah. through, like, another app, or is it their, their own platform? Yeah, it's brand new. It's a, it's their own platform. Yeah, it's a, so you can get it through. We, we have it on our uh, Roku, and then there's an app. Um, but... They got tons of stuff in there. It's like, uh, you know, I still think Tubi is probably the best place to go for exploitation gotcha. stuff. You know, for uh, where they get they get pretty decent streams of some really fucked up movies. Like uh, mm-hmm. uh, one of the movies I was talking to you guys about was Last House on Dead End Street. Yeah, I watched that. The, the Roger Watkins. 
And that movie was made for 3000 bucks. That and is it was, not a lot. <laughs> yeah. And it was made in 1973. And, uh, the, uh, it's basically shot, I don't know, 16 millimeter. And then they overdubbed it. And it was Watkins doing most of the voices <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it's scratchy and grubby and grimy. And I hope they keep it that way because it, Really feels yeah. feels like a uh, very much like a snuff film, and it's part of that category of films where it's like a, a murder of the sixties, mm-hmm. you, you know, sort of thing where you have this gang of uh, hoodlum hippies basically just just murdering people. But yeah. it's a uh, it I I would highly recommend that one, not for its pleasant content because it has. One of like the most offensive scenes I've ever seen in a movie, just like out of left field, and it's not a gore scene; it's just really offensive. Oh yeah, and it goes on for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. And you'll have to see it because I'm not going to talk about it, but it's a, uh, it, it's awful. But I see what they're trying to do with it. The reason why it was in the movie is just to show how disgusting people are. But um, the fact you mentioned that movie and it reminds me of something how like, you know, obviously that's playing upon and taking advantage of the title Last House on the Left and trying to use a similar right. phrasing. Last House on the Left is not the name of this movie. Actually, a marketing guy comes up with the came up with the title <laughs> and this marketing guy. He also came up with the idea of keep saying to yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. Right. And I love this because right. I, I, I had a marketing concentration in business school. But most marketers, they will acknowledge that like 98% of what they come up with is total nonsense. And they're lucky if some of it – they call it hammering jello against a wall. Like the little right. bit that remains is what, is, is what sticks. But this movie was a total failure until they came up with this new title. Right. And I think it's one of the best titles in horror movie history. It just is so atmospheric and so mysterious. Right. And then when he was showing the movie to his wife, she was losing her mind. He kept saying, honey, like, it's only a movie. It's only a movie, which then, of course, became these brilliant posters and brilliant trailers. And I really feel like Wes Craven's whole career might owe a serious debt of gratitude to this one marketer who came up with the title (laughs) and this ad campaign, which really helped make this movie explode into this monster hit. Right. And I'm not sure uh, how much of those stories are you know, sort of folklore, you know, because they they did use that previously. I I was reading something and it had been used previously. Oh, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. They do. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple of marketing campaigns. Yeah. So, you know, I could I could imagine the guy in the in the uh, 1972 saying, I got this great idea. I stuck (laughs) in my wife. (laughs) I told her, honey, it's only a movie, you know. But anyways, the. uh, it, it is it is brilliant. I think the uh, actually the movie Last House on Dead End Street uh, was made in 1973 and it was called Fun House. Mm. And then it didn't start uh, gaining a reputation. So they changed the name <laughs> until until they changed it. So names are and then A good descriptive title goes a long way. Yeah, and then there's a House by the Cemetery and House by the Edge of the Park. Which actually David Hess was in. Did you guys have you guys seen that? I watched a few little clips when you you mentioned earlier, <laughs> right. and it looks uh, looks fun. It looks exciting. Yeah, it's it's definitely not as uh, visceral or important as Last House on the Left, but it's pretty fun. And and David Hess is really fucked up in it. And uh, hmm. it's okay. uh, it's a tri- it's a trippy movie because it's sort of like uh, like high class. 
but low class at the same time. Hmm. You're okay. speaking my language. Well, let's talk a little bit about people's reactions to Last House on the Left, because obviously it excited a lot of controversy, a lot of protest. People were losing their minds, apparently like having heart attacks and fainting in the theater. And people were writing letters of protest to theaters for playing it, which prompted sometimes some very articulate defenses, like newspaper advertisements saying like, you will hate the people who perpetrate these outrages, and you should, but if a movie, and it's only a movie, can arouse you to such extreme emotion, when then the director has succeeded. The movie makes a plea for an end to all the senseless violence and inhuman cruelty that has become so much a part of the times which we live. Now, that last sentence, I'm sure, was a great defense. On the other mm. hand, I call 10% bullshit on some of the more kind oh, of, yeah. um, aspirational elements of the movie. Oh, yeah. you, you can talk about how oh, this movie is like a protest against Vietnam. It's, it's like a, a primal scream yeah. against the times in which we all live. I don't think its intentions were 100% completely like some high moral tone as much as Wes Craven might claim otherwise. Right. You cannot because shoot these kind of violent nude scenes without taking some sort of perverse pleasure, especially since we know yeah. where the screenplay started. But Dan, what, what, right, you, what yes. were you about to say? Yeah, exactly what you just alluded to, and Bradley was was going to allude to. This started as a a, a porno. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're you're not making uh, you know, morality tales uh for generations uh with right. hardcore sex, right? So yes, I think that there was, <laughs> you know, probably some element of this where they said, God, you know, this the world is really getting fucked up. Um, let's capture a little bit of that. And um, so, yeah, there's probably some of that in there. Like, I don't know, 10%, 50%, whatever. But yeah, some people might call total bullshit. Like, look, the mm. people are getting off on the violence and the sex in the movie, no matter what they might say about their intentions. Yeah. And as far as like, so, but the thing is, if that was their intention, I, I, it didn't work. I mean, right. society at large is is totally desensitized to violence at this point. If, if this, if this movie came out now, um, no, no one would be fainting in the theater. You know, people might be like, Oh, that's stupid or what, what not. But, you know, you see this level of violence on cable TV and, uh, you know, everywhere now. So, um, whatever aspirations they might've had, uh, you know, I, I don't think I don't think it worked. But there are some modern, you know, films uh, like Benny's Video. Uh, yes. That's just uh, that explore violence and a Michael Haneke movie that yeah, talked no, about it's, it with it's Marcus, one of his, Marcus it's one of his best Cannon. early movies. Yeah, he's great. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's uh, directors like that that uh, explore violence, but. I mean, who fucking sees that movie except us weirdos? Yeah. Know? Well, I, yeah. I saw it for the first time. It's on Criterion Channel. I saw it. Marcus Penn and right. I did a giant episode about Michael Hanukkah, and so I saw it then. But it's, it's, it sneaks up on you and then really mm -hmm. disturbs you. But what the reason Very. I was asking, though, about these intentions and people's defending of it, because Wes Craven famously walked out of a screening of Reservoir Dogs, and Tarantino apparently said, well, I can't believe the guy who made Last House on the Left walked out of Reservoir Dogs, to which Craven responded, Last House was about the evils and horrors of violence. It did not mean to glorify it. This movie, Reservoir Dogs, glorifies it. Now, I have the utmost respect and admiration for Wes Craven, but once again, I kind of have to call bullshit because yeah. while Reservoir Dogs might revel in the violence a little bit more, 
I do think Last House on the Left, to a degree, you have a young filmmaker who's working out his demons by putting everything on the screen he can think of. And I do think he was getting off on it to a degree. And I think it's dishonest to claim mm. that somehow Last House on the Left is totally going in the opposite direction than Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, and at the very least, Reservoir Dogs was born out of movies like Last House on the Left. So, like, how can you, you know, you 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 got this ball rolling. You you started this shit. Like, how can you now be like, oh, you know, I'm taking a moral high ground? Well, Pauline Kale actually wrote one of the best reviews of Last House on the Left and made one of the best defenses of it. And she mm. said, uh, it happens to be one of the most gruesomely terrifying movies ever made. And when you leave the theater, you may wish you could forget the whole horrible experience. The film's grainy, banal seriousness works for it, gives it a crude realism. Even the flatness of the amateur's acting and the unfunny attempts at campy comedy add somehow to the horror. <laughs> Yeah. There's, yeah. There's no art well, to transmute the ghoulishness. And so Pauline Kale, when she was on, I mean, there are plenty of times where I totally disagree with her and her takedown of certain films. But man, when you agree with her, she expresses your oh, yeah. points of view very eloquently. Well, yeah. and, and you look at uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer had a couple wacky moments as well. And uh, mm-hmm. the very few. And uh, <laughs> they didn't have a fucking chicken truck in it. No. But... but <laughs> Yeah, but they had a scene where they killed a guy with a television set. (laughs) That's a great scene. You know, but uh, what movies have you guys, other movies have you guys seen that, like uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, I saw, uh, you know, Taxi Driver. uh, Mm -hmm. There's a few movies that I've seen, you know, when I was younger uh, that just stuck with me pretty much forever, but like really fucked me up for like days. Um, there's uh, the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. Oh, I love it. The Peter Green. I, 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 I just saw that. And yeah, uh, Helen Mirren, like, she, she makes you, she helps people overlook the ghoulishness of the movie. The fact that like, oh, a yeah. guy's being <laughs> served up to, as like a cannibalistic dish at the end is, yeah. And that's but a they, wild, that's, that's the only Peter Greenway movie I've seen. And I don't know why I haven't seen more of his movies because oh, they're great. it, it blew my mind. And and he's one of those uh, uh, directors that people are of one side or the other on, and I I really like his stuff. But the uh, but that movie left a vibe like a, a grubbiness, you know, that uh, lingered. So what other movies? I'm just curious. Like had that and, kind of uh, last house impact. I mean, when I first saw Irreversible in the theater. Oh, I think oh, that's got yeah. the most painful, agonizing, oh my God. miserable yeah. rape scene ever caught on film. And just yeah, the way Monica Bellucci sells that scene, I had no idea what – all someone told me was the title and that it had, was, had made a big splash at Cannes, I think. I was like, all right, let's go. I'd never heard mm-hmm. of Gaspar Noé. Then I went to see that in the theater, and it knocked me for a loop. So that was one of the most traumatic kind of uh, first – First time experience right. I've had watching a movie in the theater. Well, yeah. and then the uh, the the scene in the club with the fucking guy getting killed with the uh, fire extinguisher. Yeah, yeah, it's, oh it's gruesome. God. And the way he's kind I of can't even talk his about face has been completely destroyed, and the jaw is still kind of quivering and moving. It you really had to go the extra mile to make the jaw kind of flinch. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's sad. Oh yeah, and that but that was a uh, that was him. At his most uh, powerful, I think. You know, he's still trying to do uh, that sort of thing, like with Climax and but stuff Climax like that. Climax was only R-rated. That was his first R-rated movie he ever made. 
Really? Yeah. Not an NC-17? Everything else was like, you know, triple X, NC-17, like a, nobody, nobody's allowed to see this movie. <laughs> it's, still had its, it's still had its fucked up moments and it was still immersive. I, I, I like him. He's another one. Oh yeah, no, Gaspar Noe is great. I saw him, uh, I saw him introduce Love and uh, he had, and he had his, uh, his female lead from the film there as well. And yeah, he's an interesting character without a doubt. I really respect and admire what he's doing. And I love his taste in movies as well. Yeah. yeah, Love even had some uh, some fucked up moments in it. Oh, well, I mean, Love, it's like, for people who are always trying to expand their sexual boundaries or horizons, Love is one of those cautionary tales where it's like, well, you can take the pursuit of pleasure to such a crazy extreme that right. it's no longer even fun anymore. And yeah, Love definitely mm-hmm. shows you, like, if you live completely as a hedonist for pleasure, in the end, it may be... It's not that fun. <laughs> you got to defeat. Yeah, there, and there's a few movies that have done that, like Ice Storm. Uh, you oh, know, shit. Uh, yeah, how they were doing like the swingers things within oh, the I neighborhood, really the, the, the keys in the fishbowl. Yeah, you know, which uh, explored that. Uh, you know, couples going too far to the point where it like starts destroying their relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that would make a nice double feature, Dan. Well, anything oh, with sex yeah, always sounds good. like a good idea at the time, but then it, uh, you know, <laughs> things start to kind of backfire. But it's funny how yeah. Wes Craven doesn't ever really get into sexual terrain ever again. And like, I know he worked under a bunch of pseudonyms on various porn films, and maybe mm-hmm. like once again he had this very strict religious background. But once he'd kind of processed, destroyed all of his inhibitions, he'd kind of gotten out of his system. And then by the time he gets, I mean, Swamp Thing obviously is work for hire, but by the time he gets to Nightmare on Elm Street, he's really prepared and ready to make his signature film. But how would y'all rate Last House on the Left in comparison to the rest of Wes Craven's work? Because for me, I think in terms of personal preference, Mm -hmm. I think it's my number two of his entire filmography. I think uh, there's a, yeah, there's different levels. I think, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, I, I really, I really like the Hills Have Eyes yeah. as as well, um, and I don't think I, I, I think especially after rewatching Last House, now I put Last House above the Hills Have Eyes, but I really do think his his masterwork is Nightmare on Elm Street. Agreed. Um, like Scream it, was so much fun when it came out. I remember yes. being in college. I think it came out my first Christmas in college, and I went with my sister. The entire audience was all kids and teenagers, like screaming. It was like it's like being at a rock concert. And everybody's like you could just feel this weird nervous energy mm-hmm. going throughout the theater. And it was so much fun. It had that like contagious emotion, and just became mm-hmm. this cultural sensation. I was the perfect age for. But the movie's not necessarily what I, like my go-to at all now. I was like I was just all in on the hype at that time. Yeah. And I enjoy Serpent in the Rainbow and things like that. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, people under the stairs. People under the stairs. Yeah. I saw that in the theater with a big group. I think I was in seventh or eighth grade, big group of teenagers and I, we went to see it. We mm. loved it. We had an absolute blast watching it. Wes Craven's made a lot of cool flicks, but I really think it boils down to Nightmare and Last House on the Left. Those are the two movies that where he will be remembered. Music of the Heart, I saw that in the theater. It's one of the oh, yeah. dumbest movie-going experiences that I've ever had the privilege. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to make a Music of the Heart joke. So I mean, it is awful. It is like laughably stupid. Yeah, he just needs to stay the, the fuck away from Meryl Streep. You know, he's just, uh, you know, if you look at Meryl Streep's movie career, it sort of goes downhill after music. Well, every art. successful horror director is always trying to escape 
the horror genre right. because they hate being trapped in it, no matter how good at it they might be. But it's like, fine, you know, expand your boundaries. I'm all for it. But don't sign up for like the most nauseatingly sentimental, just <laughs> mainstream fucking fart garbage that you could possibly make. I mean, music of the heart made me want to go on a murderous rampage like Krug. I mean, I, I could have ended up <laughs> yeah. up in Dan's neighborhood killing people at the lake. Because Dan, didn't this get? Sh- Don't you live nearby where this was shot? So yeah, I except I live... in the morning with coal bricks, <laughs> Exactly. I live in uh, New Milford, Connecticut. So that is where I believe my soul to take was filmed, right? And up the road for me in Kent, um, that's where uh, I, I spit on your grave was filmed. Wow. And then down towards Wilton um, is where this film uh, was was filmed. And uh, one of the one of the neat things I noticed is right when they the two girls are uh, kind of playing uh, at the water's edge at the beginning of the movie, and they're on this rock. And oh, they're looking for the um, booze. Yeah, exactly. And there, there's this little rock cliff that they're sitting on as, as they're talking about how they want to make it with bloodlust. And there's graffiti <laughs> underneath it that says BHS 65. And looking at the geography of this area, the, the closest town that begins with a B is my wife's hometown of Bethel. Oh, nice. So, maybe it's like your wife's like, maybe like your, your in-laws were out there. And- yes, exactly. So it's somebody, you know, but I think this is Bethel High School, class of 65, has the tag in this, uh, in this movie. Well, and, and that's crazy. To answer your question <laughs> about the, uh, about uh, his movies, mm-hmm. uh, definitely Last House on the Left, and then uh, some of his movies ir- irritated me. But uh, People Under the Stairs, I really like that one. Hell yeah. Yep. So, and then, uh, obviously, Nightmare on Elm Street. What do y'all think of New Nightmare? That's, I feel like that one always divides people. And I've heard compelling reasons to like and dislike that flick. I, I, I liked it. I mean, don't go by me. I like all movies. We've we, we kind of been talking <laughs> about this lately. I'm a horrible... Uh, we, were having a, uh, we have a show coming up with our friends uh, LB and Andrew... And uh, we were in the DMs, and they're like, "Do you guys like action movies? I hate most action movies." And they're in there. I'm just like, "I love them. I love Steven Seagal. I love everything. I love romantic comedies. I love westerns. I just love movies." So, yeah, yeah. I, I liked New Nightmare. I thought it was it was a, an interesting place to take it. I like that um, you went back to um, what's her name's uh, Nancy. Uh, yeah, Nancy. Yeah, you went with Nancy and uh, Lagan, you know, Heather's kind of story and focused on her. I thought it was fine. I thought it was good. Um, it was a movie. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we talked about it on the show how when I was a kid, I, I, uh, one of my memorable moments was going in to see uh, the movie Hardcore. Oh, the Paul Schrader in the, in, Yeah, in the late 70s. And they're or mid seventies. Yeah, George Scott's incredible in that. Yeah, and I was I was a kid going in to see that. Wow! Like, and uh, there was a line of kids. When going you say in kid, like how how old do you, do you mean by kid? I, I was like twelve, thirteen, something like that. And uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, that's, that's an intense in, flick. Yeah, and I remember <laughs> going into the movie and seeing <laughs> seeing a line full of kids going in to see Pete's Dragon. Yeah, very like, different uh, movie. 
Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> and I was like, fucking losers. You know, so but that's I'm my... Dick Black, and I'm the man for your picture. He's like, I got a dick that's nine inches long. I can come ten times a day. He's like, yeah, you're not the yeah, guy we're looking and, for. Uh, yeah, it's, but that's what that's what kind of made me who I am. You're like, and what is come? You know, like it you made gotta... me it made me angry against popular things. You know, for pretty much like my whole life, like like the Scream series, I couldn't get into. The only scene I liked in Scream, I really think you have to be like nineteen, eighteen, seventeen yeah. to embrace that kind of MTV style, beautiful teenager right. kind of horror thing at the time, which obviously spawned a bunch of other piss poor imitations and so on and so right. forth. But for whatever yeah. reason, man, I was all in. Like I was my first exposure to Rose yeah. McGowan. I thought she was so fucking cute and Nev Gamble oh, was yeah. so great. And it was like, well, also with the first horror movie I'd seen that was ref- making references to other horror movies. And you go back right. to like Scorsese's friggin' uh, who's that knocking at my door. Even in there, Harvick, I tell in the late sixties is talking about the searchers. So it's not like a new thing talking about movies right. and movies, right. but I guess prior to scream, Pulp Fiction was probably the only movie I'd seen where they actually make references to movies in the context of the movie. So that felt like a novelty at the time. Well, the scene where they were uh, uh, stabbing each other in the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, that's that's the scene that I remember most where they're just like uh, cutting each other, you know, and stabbing yeah, each Lillard other. And like Skeet a, Ulrich. Losing, losing Matt, is blood. Is it Skeet Ulrich? Or who is it? Yeah, I think it's still Skeet Ulrich. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's Skeet, which, I mean, frankly, if I was. Long before the song guy, Skeet, I, Skeet, Motherfucker, which obviously changed the meaning of the word forever. Yeah, and if I was within three feet of that guy, I'd be stabbing him too, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so anyway, so, but that scene there was really uh, interesting and the, kind of depraved a little bit. So it's the movies that have a little bit of depravity in it uh, that come from Wes Craven that, that I like. Dan, mm-hmm. I, I like depravity. I'm sorry. I, I've noticed. Well, yeah. going back to, I mean, Wes Craven talks about this in his interviews. Go back to Greek mythology. Go back any powerful myths, legends, tales, etc. Going back thousands of years, usually there's something really sadistic and pra- depraved. If you like Greek mythology, well, it, it ain't all, you know, flower power. Yeah. There's a lot of yeah. really fucked up shit going on, and so I have absolutely no problem totally embracing that, which I guess leads me to some of my final questions for you guys as we start to wrap this up. You've already kind of answered this, but when, when I, one of my questions was, does Last House in the Left still shock you, and which are the flicks that cross over? And you, you already threw out Red to Kill. Um, I guess, is there... <laughs> Do you have a line? That was always the big question. Is like, I feel like everybody's got. I'm kind of a free speech and freedom of expression zealot, where I'm like right. everybody should be able to say what they want, be able to write what they want, watch what they want, make the movies that they want. As long as you're not hurting anybody, live and let live, and let people express themselves. I think every book ever written, every movie ever made, everything should all be available, totally intact. I really don't mm-hmm. have a line of any kind. I just choose not to watch certain things if they're right. outside of my taste, but are there horror flicks that you're aware of where you're like, Ugh, I'm not going to go on Twitter defending that movie. I, I think the, the thing for me, cause I'm, I'm very much like you, you know, just let, let whatever you want to create be out there. Right. Um, the one movie that I've never been able to go back to and finish was antichrist. Oh, the um, Lars von Trier movie. Interesting. Yes, and you did, Lars von. I, you didn't. You didn't uh, like the ticks all over uh, Willem Dafoe's hand. I didn't even get that far. Um, How far did you get? My, I, did you get to I the genital mutilation? No. 
What, you got to be more specific because there are two cases of genital mutilation. She yeah, smashes the, his uh, dick with a log and then she hacks off with scissors her own clitoris. Right, okay. that one. Yeah. I didn't get to any of what would be considered the shocking elements. I got only to when the kid died. That happened – first time I saw it, I got through that. I was like, this is beautiful. This is stunning. I don't think I want to watch it right now. And so I just kind of pressed pause, but then mm-hmm. it took me a long time to circle back around to it. And then when I finally saw it, I was like, all right, this is one of yeah. Lars von strongest movies, but you got to be in the mood for it. Yeah, and my son was just about that age when I watched this movie, and it just hit me uh, in in this you know way that you know I I would I guess I faced his mortality right, um, yeah. and I I couldn't handle it. So for me, the only things that I won't uh, probably won't watch are things that become too real for me on an emotional level. Well, my kid was already grown up and out of the house, so uh, when I saw Antichrist. I did a, uh, which I thought was one of my best side-by-sides, and it's now gone into the ether oh, forever. I feel your pain. Now. My account was taken yeah, away yeah. as well. We're going to have to have a podcast one day of just with people whose accounts have been taken away by Twitter. <laughs> it's not going to be hard to find them these days. But, uh, yeah, Boss, uh, I did a side-by-side with that opening scene and uh, uh, screen captures from the movie uh, The Boss Baby. And uh, <laughs> so... So it's actually, it's some Look, really great Your Twitter great game is strong. Your account, so <laughs> your account for Movies from Hell will be back to where Bradley Cornish was before long because I have to say, your Twitter game is is usually very much on point and very and yeah. very entertaining. But yeah, so it's like, who else out there has had their, I know it was a Tico Ramau or oh, whatever. Thing. He got his account taken away, but he started a new one with the same name. Like, no, you can't give him the satisfaction. Like, if, if Ron mm-hmm. Real and Geeking Out get taken away from me, I'm just done with Twitter. I'm not going to invest time yeah. and energy and have them just like... Just blow well, and away. frankly, if I get mine back, like when it was first taken away, I was sending notes like, "Hey, Twitter, I'm a really nice guy. Why are you doing this to me?" <laughs> and then, and then by the time I was done, I was like, "You fucking sons of bitches!" <laughs> and then, but but did if you get I, taken away because of music, or what? Ha- or what happened? What happened with your account? I I I posted a couple of, I mean, nothing bad at all. Like, there's one. There's a. Uh, like uh, a Twitter feed that does nothing but headshots, you know, like the heads exploding, <laughs> you know, but uh, uh, there's, uh, I think it was because I didn't have it marked as mature, you know, oh, my, my gotcha. account. And uh, I had the, the fucking tire movie, Dan, the fucking, rubber? T- yeah. Rubber. It showed a picture of someone with their head blown off in in the, uh, in a hotel room. And then I had another, how do you uh, mark something as adult? I don't even know how to do that. You, you do you mark it as mature in your settings or something like that. Man, I should just mark my whole account mature and just so I don't have to, never have to worry about it. Right, right. Mm. And the only time it shows up is people who say that they don't want to see mature content. Gotcha. But I think if you have that and you do fucked up shit, uh, Twitter will look at that and then say, "Oh, he's the tells everybody they're doing fucked up shit, so it's their fault." But anyway, so I got <laughs> I got a couple of flags on that. And one of them was uh, a movie uh, for of the, not not for the apocalypse. It was another old Italian, uh, you know, uh, western, mm-hmm. and it was just a, a bloody skull. So I got those flagged, and I was like, "Holy fuck! Who's who's like the 
angry Christian woman who's like, I think it was Dan just fucking with you. I know. Yeah. And then yeah, it all went wrong. And then I had this is what got me uh, canceled by Twitter. I had a picture of Udo Care with a trickle of blood coming out of his mouth as my avatar. And then Joe Spinell. Oh, that's uh, they freak out if your profile picture or your background picture mm-hmm. don't obey right. the community guidelines. Because my Savage Comics account, which is devoted to erotic art, got banned temporarily because the background right. broke their rules. I was like, well, just fucking tell me. You don't have to yeah, freak that's out. What, exactly. Exactly. So that's what – and then it was like suspended forever. And it's like – but you know what? It's kind of like, uh, and I'm glad you're talking about this because it's, uh, you know, the Twitter community. That's where all my movie friends are. You know, it's like it's a big deal to a lot of people. And uh, a lot of people uh, rely on it for their business as well. Yes. You know, and, um, you know, luckily... (laughs) I, what we do, I mean, it's, it just cost, costs us money, basically. <laughs> uh, but um, the uh, but the uh, fact is, it's like the people who follow my movies, uh, the 26MFH pod, are the people who really liked what I was doing enough to follow my podcast. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the core group of cool people and everybody else. And, you know, the other eight, 9,000 people are just a bunch of douchebags. I wanted to see. Yeah. I love know, our community heads. on Twitter. And if I were to get <laughs> booted entirely, it would wound me to leave that behind. However, it's like if you're investing hours and hours and hours into creating traffic on a site and then they just whew, blow yeah. it away. It really makes you bitter. And I go, well, then I should be investing my time on Reddit or I should be investing my time on Instagram or I should be investing my time on Facebook. And so, but I just happened, I just like the Twitter interface. So I've I've over-invested my time in Twitter Twitter over the years. And I've got this great circle of friends on there, but I'm not going to be creating any new accounts there. I'm just going to use it. And there will come a day where Twitter seems like Friendster. Or it seems like, you know, what MySpace. And we'll all be on something new and we will just... We will laugh that Jack Dorsey was ever able to alarm us. But the getting back to the subject at hand, just as a way of closing things down, essential 70s revenge horror films. I mean, you mentioned I Spit on Your Grave, Dan, being shot yeah. where you live. And obviously, Thriller, A Cruel Picture, comes up quite a lot. People love cosplaying as that character. Mm. And, yep. But w- any other movies, li- I mean, because obviously, Last House on the Left turns into a revenge film. What are the great 70s revenge Hardcore exploitation flicks. I like the uh, I like the Japanese ones, like the yep. uh, seven seven one, uh, you know the Scorpion, you know uh, movies. Yep, those 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 are a lot of fun because yeah. they're Lady, really Lady Snowblood. Yeah, oh, Lady Snowblood fucking rules. Yeah, 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 because they really they really fuck people up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they don't get. They don't get raped and killed, and then their dad has to come in with the chainsaw. You know, they yeah. they do the fucking they, up themselves. They take care of it themselves, right? Yeah, and they, and they do it pretty pretty viscerally in a lot of cases. Although there is a certain amount of satisfaction seeing a girl's mother biting a dude's dick off and spitting it out. I know, like they, the way they did it is with like a like a leather belt, so she could actually like really bite down, yeah, and shake and pull. But that scene, man, she handcuffs him. And this dumbass is like, he's like, I could, you know, I could make love to a looker like you with my arms tied behind my back. And so, of course, she does. And then she proceeds to bite his fucking dick off. I mean, all the other stuff is pales in comparison to that. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. So I don't know. I'm not really a, uh, a huge fan of 
you know, the, the revenge films. What about you, Dan? Any revenge films that from this period that jump out um, at you? Uh, well, we, we covered Rolling Thunder. On oh, our I love show. Rolling Thunder. That's a, that's that's a dark a, that's fucking a, movie. That's a good one. I, mean, I wouldn't call that really like classic sure. exploitation, though. That's, oh, it's, it's, know, a, it's a notch above. Exploitation for yeah. me always implies, I mean, technically anything that exploits a woman or a monster or whatever is an exploitation film. But for me, there's yeah. got to be a low budget. And Rolling Thunder's got a certain level of craft that I think it's many notches above exploitation. Oh, I love r- rolling, rolling yeah. thunder. And that's more of like, it's not quite, it's not a, rape, but like is death wish a seventies revenge movie? Yeah. It's different than yeah, last Yeah, Exactly. House. But there are a yeah, lot of movies in the seventies. That's that a deal vigilante. With, yeah. Yeah. I guess, but, and then, yeah. Vigilante it, and revenge movies are kind of, I feel like they're close, close step cousins or kissing right. cousins as we say in the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, rolling thunder is a, uh, uh, you, you took my arm revenge <laughs> yeah. movie. Um, <laughs> You get you get some good revenge stuff in in some black exploitation movies. Um, yeah, coffee, coffee is yeah, fucking coffee, fabulous. Yeah, coffee, Sugar Hill is a little you know a little bit of revenge, um, but I I don't think anything really. Uh, the two that, that just you know stick out in my mind, of course, are Last House and I Spit on Your Grave. Those yep. are the. I mean, Last. The I mean, spitting, spitting Your Grave has the most uncomfortable castration scene I've ever seen. Like it's while it might be fun to watch the mother biting a dude's dick off in last house, the way this astonishingly hot girl in a bathtub is getting on the guy pulls the knife into the water and just really quickly. And he's like, Oh, oh." it's like, wow. (laughs) He doesn't even feel what's happened for a moment. He thinks something has happened sexual that he's kind of misinterpreting. And then suddenly just the blood starts gushing out. If your legs aren't crossing left, right, left, right over and over and over (laughs) again, and you're not squirming your seat, then I don't, then you're not a man, but that is, that's the most memorable castration scene I've ever seen. I guess it's right up there with like Robocop shooting a dude in the dick. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is yeah, yeah. never well, ceases actually, to make me laugh. there's a dick shot in in this movie uh, no not this movie uh the uh house by the edge of the park david okay. has gets shot in the dick i uh, gotcha oh, wow. yeah yeah it's basically oh, just like, sounds like it's hey, time to do some hey, side by sides just like uh <laughs> just like a little paintball uh thing but the uh uh in the realm of the senses has a, has a, a really nice castration yeah, but that's like a weird like act of love where he wants to die right. and she wants to keep his penis inside her as long as possible. And it was based on a true story. They actually found the girl with the severed penis inside of her body. Yeah, That's uh, Nagisa Oshima at his most I got, uh, deranged. I got four of them inside me right now. Exactly. I mean, you, you ain't <laughs> you know, living I, unless you got a couple severed penises just tucked away in your orifices. Yeah, that's probably... I, yeah. I've never seen that movie, but I've seen... Oh, it's great. I've seen the that story that was directed by the guy who did uh Haosu. um he also filmed a version of that story gotcha. so i saw that one yeah and that's uh he did he did yes yeah the, uh, the guy did house that? that's the only movie i've seen by him but i know he did a lot of like made for tv movies and things like that yeah obi obi but i i don't think Thank he you, yeah i don't know what the uh hold on i'll tell you in a second was it uh samurai Googling. kids Googling furiously. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the In the Realm of the Senses, a beautiful movie. Yeah, mm. I need to watch more Oshima. He's definitely one of, the, one of the giants of Japanese cinema. Well, as we start to draw things to a close, where can people find your show? What do they have to look forward to? Where can people find your social media? Now is the time to plug and promote all of your endeavors. Daniel, you have a sexy voice. Would you Ooh, like to? Okay. Would you like well, to do this part? 
Yeah, you can find me at Dan Pullen Books on Twitter. Um, you can find Bradley, who runs our show account, at 26MFHPod. Uh, we have a lovely website that Mr. Cornish put together called uh, MoviesFromHell.com. Uh, we do a lot of uh, our, you know, in-depth uh, kind of breakdowns of what we do on our show with, like, links out to trailers and interviews and things like that on, on there. We also have a link out to the watch list from Hell that I put together. It's at uh, 380 movies So do you, you no longer subscribe to your philosophy? What was it you said early on? Like, I have... Like, lots of ideas, but I do no work. <laughs> you had some quote along those lines. That's that's me. Bradley does all the work. Yeah, he still doesn't do any work. But he did. He does the watch, the watch list, which is great. Yes. I was so excited. I, like, was tweeting it over and over again. But the uh, all of our movies that we've talked about on the show and covered, mm-hmm. uh, so you, you can find Red to Kill, Run to Kill, all those <laughs> movies, uh, the, all of our Cat 3 movies, which is just a shitload of them. And then we have our... A next series, we just finished our Ken Russell series, mm-hmm. and uh, we came out with the 70s uh, episode with Marcus, and uh, I don't know how soon your episodes come out from recording, but... This will be up. I've got one episode in front mm-hmm. of you about Carl Theodore Dreyer, which I have to edit oh, first. Oh, nice. And I just released nice. an episode today, but um, it'll be up inside the next two weeks at the latest. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> and uh, so as far as the... Uh, as the the Russell series, uh, the '60s with uh, Funderburg's going to be out uh, in between then, and then we'll have the '80s with Crawford, uh, Stephanie Crawford, almost called Crawford, uh, <laughs> and um, then uh, Patrick Horvath uh, episode on the Devils. And now we're going to be jumping into a series, uh, and I was going to do a four a four episode series, but then I started to get to the bottom of the barrel. And I'm like, I'm like, fuck this shit. I'm we're only doing two ser- uh, two shows on exploitation, so we're gonna do two episodes on exploitation, and then after that, we're gonna do the whole fucking alphabet again, Dan. Yeah, I, I'm ready for it. Yeah, uh, so we do uh, twenty six movies from hell. Twenty six movies from hell, where we get a let a letter, and we pick f- uh, four films. Well, it sounds like you need to start with Antichrist and make Dan revisit his trauma. <laughs> Uh, oh god that's terrible thanks yeah. james yeah so uh but that's fun because i learn more about movies uh than uh and stuff because we have to do a lot of research and explore to come up with those four movies yeah and uh that's really going to beef up our, our, our watch list from hell dan yeah it it really is and that's uh the the 26 movies from hell uh journey is tough especially when you get up into the the higher uh letters in the alphabet you know like when when we got the x we're like i don't know uh xanadu that's when we did our xanadu (laughs) nothing but xanadu yeah 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 so So, and then our uh, xanadu which is an (laughs) all-star event uh where we invite people on uh that come on to our show to do a special episode uh this year this year it's lifeguard 
Gotcha. That's a titillating, it's a titillating flick, without a doubt. Well, thank you so much for coming on Wrong Reel, and let's definitely cook up an uh, idea to get y'all back on here in the very near future. But we hope y'all have enjoyed this show. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Every once in a while, an episode like this one will make someone real mad, and they'll go on iTunes and talk about what a sick son of a bitch I am. And so I need the occasional positive review just to keep things kind of nice and balanced out, etc. and so forth. So you'd be doing me a huge favor if you leave us a positive rating review over there on Apple Podcasts. But if you want some more content, hunt on my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. And you can oh, always yeah. find me on Twitter at WrongReal or at Geeking Out. But thanks again for listening. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.